welcome back everyone to Love's Neighbours Watched. Uh, I know it's been a little while. We've had we've had a holiday, but we're back now. Um, so yeah, welcome back. If you haven't been here before or you're new, I'm Helena. And I'm Francesca. And uh, we have been doing this pop culture podcast, often with a female focus, for the last two years now. We've got plenty of episodes out there full of chat about various books, TV, films, shows, interviews with a whole bunch of people, including Women's Prize shortlisted author uh, Madeline Miller, the huge sensation right now, Britt Bennett. So, yeah, that is us. Um, and today we've got, oh, another very exciting interview. Yeah, so we have another book-related interview for you. This week, we're really excited to speak to author Tamsin Kalidas about her memoir, I Am an Island, which is an account of her move from London to a unnamed island in the Hebrides mm -hmm. and about the difficulties and experiences that she has uh, after she's moved there. Mm. So it was an interesting read and it was interesting to get to speak to Tamsin to get her perspective on this complex, very nature-focused book. Like I think that was one of our biggest takeaways from it. It's a book that explores humankind's relationship with nature in mm. all its forms. Yeah, I think so. And how nature can in some ways uh, be integral in the process of change and healing um, and she talks about it very candidly and she has a lot of very interesting insightful things to say about the way she has chosen to live her life the perspective she's been given I, I would perhaps say um, yeah so it's definitely a, a very unique and moving very visceral memoir Tamsin will be able to best describe the book for you guys so I feel like we should seek into the interview with um with her as a little side note yeah um <laughs> helena shared with me an article today that was written on the guardian about commonly mispronounced words yeah and the idea was that there were words that you were most likely to have seen written down um before you'd ever heard them said aloud yeah and one of them was Segway, better known on this podcast as Sieg. Sieg. <laughs> so we felt very validated by that yeah um, absolutely and it comes from the fact that you know uh yeah I think Francesca didn't know it was Sieg, Segway, sorry, until I think we discussed having a Segway in our podcast and realised that we didn't say it the same way. And then so the discussion became, how do you say it? Um, so there we go. For any of our listeners, by the way, who thought it was Sieg because of us, we're very sorry. <laughs> yeah, because one of our friends commented on our little Twitter exchange yeah. saying that she'd started to call it Sieg because of us. Yeah. And like that's the problem when something becomes a, like a bit of an in-joke is that mm. you could unwittingly be lying to you know, the public at large, which is never good. So we do apologise so, for that. We do apologise. <laughs> so, yeah, let's hop right into the interview. Let's do it. Um, so I guess I'll start off. Um, and we kind of like doing this with the people on the show just because I think it helps um, people in the audience hear about the thing we're talking about from the author's own voice. So... For those yeah. who actually haven't read your book or heard of it, can you give us like a brief, perhaps spoiler-free as possible, uh, overview of the memoir? Sure. So the book starts with um, me and my husband, Rab, having made a really big jump from um, London and um, deciding to come up north to look for a place to live. And it would be something that we'd been talking about for, for, for a long time. And we finally made that decision to take the plunge. And that was really... 
um, triggered by a whole series of very fraught and actually very frightening events that were going on in London at that time. So it became uh, a necessity really to get out. And we were looking to, we have very simple goals. We just wanted to um, find a place that we could go, do up. We had a very small budget and um, to start a family and to live closer to nature. So we found a croft um, in the most beautiful setting. There was a lot of work that needed doing. And really the first act of the book, the act is in three acts, the, the book is in three acts. And uh, the first act is all about that, that love story of um, coming to the island, our relationship, falling in love with the place, falling in love with the whole lifestyle, the traditions, the way that things worked. And also then sort of how, as time passed and um, life started to fold and also unfold around us um, how we did and didn't uh, cope with those challenges and there's a really sad theme um, of, of longing for children within that and the efforts that we took to try and achieve that and how really that was one of the big factors that broke us so mm. um, act two starts with me on my own I've got two broken hands and um, my marriage is over rabs away and um, I've just lost my father as well, my mother to a terminal illness and really kind of events take on from there. Mm. I have a very, very close um, relationship with my best friend, Crystal, who um, is also caught up with that sadness and I won't give that away. And then really from there, the sort of struggle to cope with a whole series of very overwhelming um, events, which is offset against really the, the beauty of the nature and how that that landscape comes to be such a, a presence in my life and actually um, holds me and sees me through those darker times. And then Act 3 is all about the transformation and um, coming through and, and, and how really the book then becomes a song, a song to the world and a song to nature. Yeah, yeah, I like that a lot. You moved in 2004 from, from London to, to Scotland. Um, and obviously this is you reflecting on the years and all the events that have happened since. We wondered what prompted you to decide to write a memoir and what the writing process was like. Yeah, well, I didn't really uh, choose that in a way. That sounds a strange thing to say, but it was such a raw and intense um, experience that I'd been through. Um, I was aware of this intensity of feeling inside and a real sense that there was a story there that was trying to get out, but actually accessing it initially was quite difficult. Um, and I think that's probably um, one of the um, fallouts, I suppose, of trauma, um, where the body has a great many ways of, of helping you to get through those times but also it can hide some of those uh, deep war experiences from you until such time that you're ready to find them so really the or, or for them finding you and that's kind of really how it was for me um, it was the process of writing was like a very deep process of immersion and at the beginning it was uh, poetry that came out rather than prose and that showed that I had a bit of deeper work to do to actually get to that place where I could really start to excavate those deeper emotions. And I think really it was the emotions rather than the events that I needed to discover um, first and then 
for um i guess the main narrative to sort of fall onto the page and when that happened that's really when the book the process of the writing took off it really felt like a a membrane was being shared and then the book came very very fast mm. yeah and sort of in that same vein as well was it difficult maybe at the beginning or at the end of the writing process and the publishing process i too i guess too to be so open about the things you went through yeah that's a really interesting question and again it's quite complex because there are different levels to that if we start to unpick it so mm. I was kind of thinking, well, open open to whom? Yeah. Um, that's kind of my, my starting place because it's one thing having an end product and readers, but actually when you're writing and you're there at the start of it or in the process, you're so deeply immersed. It's just you and the experiences that you're trying to capture and distill. So initially getting access to that raw material, um, that difficulty being so open about those struggles and experiences actually was a process an opening to that which I've just spoken about but um, I think really um, later once you've actually got that on the page and you've given yourself permission to go to those places to, to really journey to the heart I find writing is is less of a, a rational process and, and it's actually a surrender and when you go to that deep place sometimes you're, you're struggling to keep up mm. with that um that thought process and the voice and all of that and, and you kind of wonder sometimes where on earth does that come from but clearly it comes from that that deeper experience that you've lived and i think later you know you've then got this product and you think wow where did that come from and you know i've been so kind of caught up with that process and really sort of you know that takes over your life when you're writing yeah um and then it's done and I think the grace of that is that you know there's 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 a moment where it almost feels like you're part of um I like to always think of the water because that drew me so close to it but it's almost like a pool has been filled to its saturation point and it's spilling over and that's the point where you have a book that you can then share mm. and and then you know being part of that process that creative process that that there's an exhalation and that tide draws away and that sends you off on a fresh journey and hopefully towards then finding or, or allowing fresh material to find you, which is kind of where at the moment. So even though you've been open in the process and, and then, you know, just as you're asking me now, you know, how does it feel to, to actually have all those experiences on the page? Mm. It's actually a strange point because by the time you get to here and you're sharing a book, um, it's probably a year ago since you've actually finished writing it. So life has moved on and you're you're kind of in, in that process again with something else. So I always think it's a bit like a breath that you need to draw back in order to be able to share that experience uh, along with the launch of the book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and another big part of the book is, is you talking about the work that you undertook on your craft, uh, which you mentioned earlier, you know, you've refurbished yeah. the cottage that you're now living in, you raised sheep and cows, and um, there's a lot of interesting detail about that process in the book. Um, was that a big learning process for you? And, and could you tell our listeners a bit about what it's like um, living on an island and working a craft? Sure. So coming to the island, 
um, when we first arrived. I mean, the croft and the, the little cottage, the cottage hadn't been lived in for over five years and there'd actually been a, a fire um, in the early days. Some reparation work had been done to that, but there was a lot of work to do. We couldn't inhabit it. So we lived in a really kind of creaky battered caravan um, for a few months, which was helped by the fact there was a heat wave. So you're in this glorious sort of honeymoon and um and then and then the winter finds you and and that's when sort of challenges start in those summer months we'd um we'd joined in and and helped others um on their land we just offered offered to volunteer so we could learn some of those processes um, we went to the markets we started learning about different livestock and and we chose to um buy uh sheep in the uh, market and also um, cows with um, calves at foot. So we had really then nine months to familiarise ourselves with the sort of daily handling and management and so on. And then, of course, you've got the process of lambing and calving and, and there's nothing that can prepare you for that. You know, um, we did, I think, a veterinary course and um, helped again with others, but you know, you don't know until you're actually doing it. And that was made infinitely harder by not having a, a dog. And and, and uh, a few years later, we, we, we got Maud, um, mm. who's still with me now. He was a tiny uh, collie pup that actually I, I did all the training with. And um, a lot of that's instinctive from the dog. But obviously, you need to help frame those prompts and cues. And they're such incredibly intelligent, wonderful, uh, dedicated animals that... Um, yeah, we shared a, a, an exceptionally close bond. And, um, yeah, and then you've got all of the land management as well. I did have some experience of um, some of uh, the, the sort of uh, techniques for gardening and things like that because mm. I'd grown up a little bit with that. But, again, my very dear friend, Crystal, who I write about a lot in the book, she she taught me most of that together with her, her husband, um, who very sadly later died. So... Yeah, it was a, a very, very organic process. And I'd say the, the beauty is it's with anything, really, when you fully immerse. The more that you learn, the more that you understand that you're still to learn and to um, step closer to. And I, I find that's the beauty of working so closely with soil and nature is that it's, it's, it's always an unfolding process. And uh, the closer you think you're stepping, the further away you become. And, and that means that it's always fresh and exciting and new. Yeah. Yeah, and especially up in um, Scotland, which is just so incredibly beautiful. And I think wild swimming um, is also kind of another activity which you talk about, um, which is obviously intensely connected to nature. Um, yeah. And I think swimming has also been kind of um, in vogue a little bit in terms of um, in the publishing world, whether it's a, a fiction book about swimming or a memoir. Um, what's your experience with wild swimming uh, been and the endurance that you need to do it? Yeah, sure. So it's very interesting how that's been, you know, categorised in a way. And I think that's helpful in some sense because it gives people a, a point of reference and a lot of information about it. But so many people that I know, um, when they're in times of trouble, just found this extraordinary pull towards the water. Mm. And and I suppose you know that that makes a lot of sense. Um, There's a lot written about how 
you know, the sea and so on is, is almost like our very deepest uh, psyche and earliest, I guess, sort of womb experience. Um, and for me, it was a place where I needed to go to be held. So at the beginning, it wasn't about the swimming. It was simply drawing closer to a great body of water. And for me, that needed to be the salt water. I don't know what that was, but mm. it I had the choice of a, a freshwater loch, which is right here on my croft, um, which is incredibly beautiful, but it was always the sea that pulled me to it. And I think having that immense, big moving body of water was such an, an incredible comfort because whatever I was going through, whatever I was feeling or or you know how busy a day had been, it was always going to be so infinitely bigger than me in so many ways. It always absolved and dissolved and freed anything that was inside and transformed that. And um, you become part of something so much greater than yourself. It, it, that, that in itself is, is the journey. Um, so I suppose initially I went to the water for comfort and a feeling of being held. And there are many different aspects to that as well that I think others will understand. Um, there's that incredible cold shock that stuns you out of yourself. It's a bit like shedding a skin. And I write about that. Um, it was drawing closer to that bigger natural world. And I think you feel this most intensely in the water because you're literally out of your depth. So you have to give your permission, give permission to yourself to really let go of all the controls that you're feeling and that's the beautiful paradox of being in the water that you you're totally out of your depth um and you give over those feelings of control in order to allow yourself to be lifted by something much greater and that greater thing i think is really your breath um because when that moment of acclimatising to the water, it's very cold up here, so between six degrees in winter yeah. and probably in summer, at best, 11 degrees. And then, let's say, in the winter, I think the coldest I, I swam in was with a minus 15 degree wind chill and for me i always went to the water without a wetsuit that was very important to get that real um immersion and um yeah building stamina and mm. resilience and and just taking myself to a place that was beyond anything i thought was possible um and and you do it and and you do acclimatize and you do become so much stronger and i think your connection to the weather and the elements and the nature as well heightens because there's no there's no barrier between you and it but coming back to the breath synchronizing with that that much bigger systole and diastolic movement that's so intimately connected with a much bigger universal breath that you're part of that in itself was um that was probably the biggest draw for me and mm. and still is so, um, and I think later, yeah, going with a camera, um, I take a a, a, a a camera into the water with um, a bit like surfers do um, with the in-water housing. And I go out in um, all weathers, um, sometimes 60 mile hour winds and um, freezing mists, generally at dawn. Um, I've swum at night and, and so on. And I think now it's as much the water as that incredible combination of water and light and light that's rising up with the 
you know, the great sun that's lifting or the moon that's setting and, and being a part of that is just extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. And in and the book, you do talk a lot about um, the relationships that um, people have with nature and how that's changed over the years and, and how it changes for you as well over your time on the island. Um, you know, you've obviously spoken about, about that in regards to swimming, but I wonder if you could yeah. speak a bit more about that um, in terms of just how you how you got used to living very closely with the natural world whilst whilst living on the island sure i i think sometimes we forget what ancient beings we are and how simple life is and when you start to live very close to nature as i did you know there were years where coping with all the things that i was uh, coping with and i write about that in my book i'm an island um the process of grief and loss and um, really having your life stripped right back and and when all those structures that you would normally rely on have been taken away finding something the necessity to find something that will hold you and for me that was the earth the bigger earth um so I lived outside um for some weeks and even months um I built a shelter um, I was living very close to the land at another point where I quite literally ran out of money and was uh, up to my neck in debt, uh, two broken hands, no means to work. And of course, then the benefits aren't there to catch you because you're not able to work. So um, there was all of that going on. And I just buried myself into the nature, but it was an incredibly healing and wholesome and nourishing process so I think really it was recognizing that when you start slowing down your pace to a different pace and pulse that rhythm of the natural world is infinitely kinder and there's so much less pressure and you start to take your cues from different signals so observing the sun and the moon the tides how they rise and fall, what happens in the natural world around them, both in the bigger um, landscape, but also the landscape um, close to you becomes incredibly intimate. I've raised a lot of um, wild birds from uh, perhaps nestlings that have, are cold and abandoned on the ground. And those birds are still in the trees and they still come and go. They come in and out of my, my home as well. Um, and so you start also to recognize their distinct call when you're around and quite often they'll fly with you it's the most it's the most beautiful close uh, bonding and synchronicity and i think for anyone who starts to participate in those different cycles and rhythms the seasons the moon the tides the plants trees and the saps and the birds and the wildlife around you'll find suddenly you're opening into a world that really you didn't really know existed was there and I think that's the difference. You're not looking at nature as something separate, but when you really start to um, immerse and live deeply with it and slow things down and attune to it, that's when things start to change in life. I think if we tap into that, daily life becomes infinitely more fertile and creative. And that thread of fertility runs through the book in lots of different ways. Um, in a woman's body, um, there's my 
journey to try and have my own children. Life starts actually not at the moment of conception, but four months before that life's conceived normally in a place of stillness and darkness. And I think sometimes we, we live so reactively we can forget that. Um, you know, we, we want ideas yesterday or we need to act so quickly to things that we become reactive. And I like to think of the inception of all things finding us long before we become aware of them. Nature is regenerative. Everything has to break down in order to renew. It's matching this archetypal quest through life against the landscape. Interestingly, the role of the quest also carried me through the process of writing, of first finding the raw experiences that were initially hidden from me and buried deep inside. And I suddenly realised I was putting down onto paper my own real, lived, actualised myth. The experiences that I'd lived so intensely and felt in all of its intensity in my heart held the poetry of the quest. The challenge was to somehow get that intensity down onto the paper and that also required as a deeper immersive process of somehow finding the courage to go there right to the raw heart of it, which wasn't easy and that took time. The raw heart of my book, I'm an Island, is a quest or a journey to find meaning. It's a story of rebirth, inner transformation, love and hope. It takes us right into the heart of that darkness in order to journey back into the light. And this is framed within the raw beauty of the natural landscape. It's this natural landscape, finding our true belonging or finding our true place of home, not just on an island, which is a metaphor for um, a bigger experience of humanity. Um, we're all islands um, until we find that connection. So not just on an island, not just in our own hearts, but also of a rite of passage that takes us to find our deeper source and with it to connect to our true instinctive place of belonging in nature. I do not fully recognise what I'm seeking in the story or even what I'm missing until that point when everything else has been stripped away. And sometimes that happens in life, doesn't it? That raw message is there all the time, but sometimes you just don't see it. And this heart and deeper meaning of the book lies hidden, if you like, within the outer narrative. And I use the language also as another means of journeying or quest. A lot of people have uh, written or talked to me about the language. And um, yes, the language used is intrinsic and integral to the experience of the book. It becomes in itself a means of transport and through its own rhythm and poetry sometimes um, becomes another secret trail that helps us to feel more deeply and to connect with that deeper, um, more truthful beat of the heart. The deeper core of this story is simply this, teaching us to find stillness and by that deeper connect to tap into our wilder beating heart and to let that journey with us and find the way through. Well, I think that's a really lovely place to end it. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your experiences and your thoughts with us. Um, Thank you both yeah. for having me. It's been such a pleasure.
Okay, well, thank you so much to Tamsin for speaking to us about the book. Uh, it was so much her voice and, you know, she answered our questions very, very fully. So we don't want to speak too much more about, you know, the memoir and Tamsin's experience because she said it all herself. Um, but I do think one of the great things for me about talking to authors is that you really get to sense you really get a deeper connection with the book that they wrote you know sometimes when you read a book you think oh I don't not oh, I don't get it but there are certain elements of it you don't connect with and talking to Tamsin meant that you really got into her head in person and understood why she wrote that memoir and I think that deepened the connection for me which I liked and also I do want to also say that I definitely agree with her ideas about how a better connection with nature on behalf of all humans could really better ourselves as a as a as a species I don't want to say yeah as a species I think like I mean I've recently become the mother of a garden as everybody around me knows my grass yeah. children <laughs> and I think just like slowing down and learning about the movements of nature and about how to read them a bit and the actual experience of growing and making the earth actually produce what you want and it doesn't take a expert hand and nor does it take a particularly deft one you know but I think that appreciating the rhythms of nature and how slow it can be, but also rewarding and being a bit more self-sufficient and kinder to the world around you, which starts, I think, with animals and plants. Um, I, you know, again, people know this. I'm a very, very proud dog mum. And having my dog, my family dog, has really helped to change my relationship with animals and make me understand and see them as creatures of nature and that share our earth rather than you know rather than sort of we're the dominant species therefore the planet serves us so yeah I really I really connect and appreciate what Tamsin is saying and the mission she is kind of on to live in this self-sufficient very close to nature way appreciating the earth and what it gives us and what animals can give us and actually connecting more um which is to say also that I'm obviously an environmentalist at now as well. So, <laughs> but yeah, it's that's what I really connected in, with. It slightly turned into your kind of like manifesto. But, yeah, but yeah. yeah. I, I know what you mean. Like it, it is a book that, I mean, we were initially attracted to it. I yeah. Think, because we both used to live in Scotland. Mm -hmm. We love visiting Scottish islands. We, you know, whilst we both currently live in cities, we also really enjoy that feeling of being on an open beach and having yeah, the you know yeah. expanse of sand and sea stretching out in front of you and the moments for me that I most enjoyed this book were when Tamsin did describe the landscape which she has a complicated relationship with and you know as she talked about in the interview she doesn't always feel welcome in fact yeah. she often feels very unwelcome in her new hometown I mean it is ultimately um a complex read um, yes you know, it's a true. memoir as we said and the reader is entirely in Tamsin's perspective her point of view the, the whole way through um, and there'll be moments where that's jarring and there were moments for me where that was a bit jarring um, you know the book uh, merges characters and time is nebulous and mm. um, you know for some that will be complicated to read and there were moments where I wasn't sure if I agreed with um, the, the narrator but that is the nature of a memoir and I don't yeah. think you have to be I don't think you have to be entirely on board with everything that the memoirist is saying in order to find this kind of book very intriguing yeah yeah I think that that is just a, the nature of this genre which is a always an interesting genre you know because you are just placed inside somebody's somebody's world um, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. seeing the world entirely through their eyes yeah um, absolutely I agree and I think 
I remember when we were, you know, we when I first read this and when we decided to kind of bring it on the show, I definitely thought it would be a book for me for different reasons. And I think it ended up being a book for me. I was like, oh, a Scottish memoir. Great. But it's not actually. It's a very powerful, sometimes dark, often dark, you know, uh, discussion and sort of recounting of a very difficult time in someone's life. And I think uh, actually, I've said this before on the podcast, and I'll say it again. I think memoirs are valuable, and any memoir is valuable because you get to see someone else's perspective. And even if it's difficult, or even if it's, you know, an experience where you're like, oh, that would never be my experience, it's important for us all to share these experiences and then ultimately become a hive mind and submit to Mother Earth. <laughs> Sorry, no, I just went off track there. Um, but I think it's really important to read books like this. Um, and that is where I think I will end with that it's so yeah. it's very it's very powerful I have to say that well I think the um the idea of of writing about your own life and dramatizing your own life is a really interesting topic anyway because um lots of writers maybe choose to fictionalize yeah. their experiences in some way um for whatever reason maybe because it allows them to kind of open up the world a bit more mm. um, or perhaps because I, I wouldn't want to say it was easier because I don't think writing about your experiences would ever be easy but no. you know there's a range of different ways of approaching that kind of topic which is quite interesting and actually as a good seek oh a seek leads me quite nicely onto one of the um one of the things I've been enjoying recently that I wanted to discuss oh sure go for it like many people, I really enjoyed Michaela Cole's new TV series, I May Destroy You. I don't know if you've like read much about it, Helena, or seen any of it. Michaela Cole's a really incredible black British content creator. You might have seen her show Chewing Gum, which was on Channel 4 in the UK and is also on Netflix internationally. You might have spotted her popping up in Black Mirror or Star Wars. Um, she's a real force in the entertainment industry. But this is a very personal project that's currently on BBC in the UK. It actually just finished on BBC um, and it's being broadcast simultaneously on HBO. I think in the US um, is a couple of weeks behind. Um, and it's based on a real life experience that Michaela Cole went through. She was sexually assaulted on a night out by a stranger after her drink had been spiked. And so that's the starting point of the series. This same incident happens to the protagonist, who Michaela Cole plays. And the, the series explores uh, topics of, obviously, sexual assault, also consent, branches out then from that to basically explore the whole world that her characters are living in, which is the modern London that, you know, you and I inhabit. At first, I, was, I found it quite tough, a tough watch, you know, um in a very different but I guess somewhat similar way to I Am An Island it is you know obviously about some very difficult topics and I think that you know for some people that will be triggering and also it can just be very hard to watch um but the show is so multi-layered and rich and filled with like easter eggs as um Michaela Cole herself put it so you watch it and then you realize that there are all these layers in which it can be enjoyed and it's told kind of like non-chronologically. Like there's one episode where it jumps back to when the main characters were at school um, and you kind of see like how they became, it's like almost like an origin story, how they became the people that they are today. Yeah, so I watched the first few episodes 
really likes it, but did have that just kind of feeling of, of finding it a tough watch. Um, and then when I got onto like episode four onwards, I was just completely hooked. It it really is amazing and absolutely worth watching. I'm, I'm sure lots of our listeners have already been listening, have already been watching it and enjoying it and have lots of thoughts about it. But yeah, I just think it's incredible and it's just also very powerful and I guess like generous piece of work in that you you feel quite empowered watching it certainly um as the as the series goes on and it doesn't I guess one of my favorite parts about it as well just to kind of conclude is that no character is wholly good or wholly bad and I think often shows will kind of iron out the creases and make sure that their characters are completely if not completely lovable always lovable in a way that like you can kind of be on board with their minor flaws you know whereas like the characters and in, in this show at times will do things that you don't agree with but in the way that at times your friends you know will like a friend might let you down or, you know so people don't always behave exactly in the way that you wish they would you don't always behave exactly in the way that you wish you would and I think the show really reflects that in a way that's so human and that's actually part of the reason it can be a bit uncomfortable to watch because it you know can, can at times feel too close to home but I think that's so clever and it, and it made me think about how that's actually very unusual that, that that any kind of piece of pop culture is that kind of raw because yeah it's just it, I guess it doesn't fit with like the tropes of tv it's really genre defying and expectation defying and for me that's what a tv series should be it should be challenging it should be stimulating it should be refreshing yeah yeah I know from hearing people talk about it and from reading about myself it's a very I would say a powerful well-made show but also an important show um just from the issues it deals with who actually wrote and starred in it we're thinking about diversity of experience and things like that in shows and we're looking for more of it and I think that show I May Destroy You definitely really does that I really champion all the uh, support and praise it's got I'm going to take a bit of a squealing jerk into a different lane here uh, and say I want to talk about one of the favourite things I saw recently, which was actually uh, Eurovision, the story of Fire Saga. (laughs) I feel like in another world, we would have debated a whole episode just of that movie. I know, I know. I've got to admit that I have yet to see it. Oh, Um, oof. But... It is definitely on my list for like a Friday evening. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure you'll make me watch it at some point anyway. Oh, (laughs) yeah. Well, it's one of those films where I... So I've talked about Eurovision before on the show. And if I could, I would have a show dedicated to Eurovision. um, But obviously (laughs) that is not everyone's cup of tea. Um, And I... Eurovision The Story of Fire Saga is a really interesting film for Netflix to have made. So, right, so it stars Rachel McAdams in... She's going for comedy movies mostly now, and I think she's doing really good at it. Um, she's been in Game Night, etc. Uh, and then Will Ferrell, who interest, is an interesting pair for Rachel McAdams, because they're from very different worlds, I feel, of movie making. Um, mm. And they're both playing these Icelandic... They're playing Europeans. They're playing Icelandic people, which is equally strange um, for Americans to be doing. Anyway, in the film itself, right, it's made by Netflix, this American TV, TV and film production company. But it's so European. It's really interesting. Like, you would think that a Eurovision movie made by Americans would be, I don't know, about some Americans discovering Eurovision or whatever. But there's actually no mention of Americans at all in the film, aside from um, Will Ferrell finds some in the gardens of Prince Street Gardens in Edinburgh. Oh, yeah, loads of it set in Edinburgh. 
Yeah, that's another yeah. thing. And uh, just yells at them, telling them that everyone doesn't like them, which is quite funny because from a European perspective, I'm sorry, any Americans listening, I'm sure you are great, but everything is very politically complicated right now. Um, but yeah, it's quite amusing to see that. So Eurovision Story of Fire Saga is a film that is made by Netflix that has Will Ferrell and Rachel McAdams in it, but literally is a love letter to Eurovision. It's really interesting. Like Eurovision, if you haven't seen it, uh, is a show that is hosted every year by a different, a different European country. It's been going for about 50 years or more now. And the whole idea of Eurovision was for to promote unity, right? Amidst political conflict, uh, amidst everything, Eurovision is meant to be a place of happiness and very camp music and dancing. And, you know, it's meant to be very up, just all out, right? And like... Every yeah. time somebody expresses a political opinion on Eurovision, nobody really likes it, unfortunately. Uh, and Eurovision is like one of the most popular broadcasts in Europe every year, right? So it's so, and I think everybody knows about Eurovision. It's really popular with young people here in the UK. Uh, you know, Australia is now in it, interestingly. So it's a huge cultural force here in Europe. And to see a film made about it, which literally is a wholly a love letter. So the film reflects that joy and that general everything will be fine kind of, you know, kind of vibe of Eurovision, right? The film, it's, the film itself doesn't make fun of Eurovision. It parodies the show and how big and technical and silly it is, but it doesn't make fun of it. It sort of very lovingly uh, depicts it. And the, the relationship between the characters, like, there's no villain. In the end, everyone is just kind of nice and everyone gets along, which is, right. the stakes are so low. And it's, uh, there are a few funny inconsistencies, right? Like, as a Eurovision super fan, I noticed the fact that they had a whole bunch of past Eurovision winners in this, like, mashup song in the middle, right? Mm. But then equally, there's some, they play fast and loose with Edinburgh's geography. Equally, if Edinburgh is the host city, that means either the UK won, which is impossible, or something else has happened do you think maybe scotland's become independent uh, maybe as well maybe so, maybe yeah. netflix supports scottish independence and scotland won i mean honestly who knows but overall and i won't say too much about it because i think well, i think you'd really enjoy it but the film itself is it's funny and it is heartwarming and for a eurovision fan like me it is truly a really honest and thoughtful and well done depiction of why the Eurovision Song Contest is great so I would honestly and it's also really it's really funny and like and uh Piers Brosnan is in it who plays Will Ferrell's very handsome father and you realize that like Will Ferrell's supposed to be in his 30s and he's literally in his 50s and Piers Brosnan's like maybe 10 years older than him so the yeah. the ages are all completely off but oh and Rich McAdams plays this really sweet Icelandic woman who is just lovely and she's like just joy and sunshine it personified oh oh and the guy we love for beauty and the beast is in it who plays the beast oh i always forget his name oh dan stevens yes and he just plays a shirtless russian it's love crazy it. it's crazy um you so, gotta give the people what they want you, you know? do and which all... is what eurovision does yeah usually. yeah yeah absolutely right um and it's really good so i'd really recommend people watch it um and i am baffled as to how netflix how the producers of that film pushed it to netflix but i mean it's been very popular here so so i research this because I was also interested in in that I mean first of all I feel like um Eurovision does have a kind of cult following in the US sure from, of course from like what American friends have told me um but obviously as you say it's not as big as it is in Europe apparently though Will Ferrell his wife is Swedish um, oh. she's an actress called Viveka Paulin sure um and she introduced him to Eurovision 
1999, apparently, which oh. was also the year that Sweden won, or one year that Sweden won. Yeah, one of um, many years. And so Will Ferrell himself, I feel like it was a bit of a passion project from what oh. I'm understanding. Okay. And he like did like research by attending the 2018 event and then um, it kind of went from there, I guess. Yeah, um, well, hats off to him because, again, I watch Eurovision every year. It's been a part of my life for so long, as you are fully aware. Um, so... I mean, I was really pleased to see them do it such justice, personally. But I think if you don't like Eurovision or you haven't watched it, you would not understand half of it. You'd be like, this is weird. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's interesting because I guess, like, I wondered as well, and I don't have the answer to this, but I wondered if it was supposed to go out in cinemas and ended up going out on Netflix because of... Oh, that's interesting, actually, yeah. But I don't know if that's true because, like, it. I'm pretty sure it was, like, a movie that Netflix made. I've seen um, ads for it from months ago, yeah. Yeah, um, and also, of course, the cast, as you mentioned, is, like, a really good cast. Yeah. Um, but, of course, you know, Netflix does get, like, you know, the big hitters, for sure, so... Yeah, um, yeah. As a side note, I also really enjoy Rachel McAdams' career. And, I do, me too. Um, I thought she was great in Game Night and that movie was really fun. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just feel like she makes choices based on things she finds interesting. Mm. Mostly time travel, which, you know, fair enough. We well, all love time travel. Time traveler's um, wife, yeah. Hey. Yeah, and, and the other one... Um, Oh, what was it called? About Time? Oh, yeah, I have watched that. She literally played a time traveller's wife twice, which oh. is very intriguing. And then she played the one where she lost her memories and kind of went back in memory time with Channing Tatum. Yeah. Wow. Rachel so, McAdams, um, what are you like? Maybe huh. that means she is actually a time traveller. Maybe that's what she's trying to signal. Oh, and I have one more thing I want to talk about, which I just discovered a few days ago. Have you heard yeah, of the Netflix show Curse? Have you seen an advert for it yet? No, I don't think I've oh seen an advert. Oh my gosh, right. It's like the heir to Merlin. And I say this oh gosh. knowing what that means, right? Yeah, big boots. I also oh. saw I also saw a really funny TikTok the other day that was um, you know, um uh you know Timothy Chalamet as he plays uh the king in the king, that Netflix show we haven't watched. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's yeah. all dark and you know, blah blah blah. And it was like it was playing like you know, this is your prince, right? But then it had pictures of uh, Bradley Coop James as Arthur being like, this is your king. <laughs> it's like, true. Anyway, oh, love it. for any of those, any of you who haven't watched the show, haven't listened, haven't heard us talk about Merlin on the show before, Merlin is a hugely important part of mine and Francesca's cultural upbringing. And it's just the truth. It is. And we definitely, there's at least, I think, one episode, which is actually called like, an accidental Merlin Merlin retrospective. Yeah, so yeah. if you want to learn more about it, you can go back and listen to that episode. Yeah. But essentially Merlin was a BBC One show that ran for about four or five seasons um, in which increasingly things got more and more crazy and it was absolutely fantastic. And Colin Morgan was in it, as is that woman from Jurassic World. Katie. McGrath. McGrath. Yes. It, yeah. Anyway, it was honestly huge in the noughties. So we're showing our age, whatever. But um, I actually got shown this advert by Netflix the other day, and actually, it's this. The show is now f number one in the in number one in the UK today. So basically, it is a show called Cursed, and it's about the Lady of the Lake, so Nimue. So the idea is. Oh so wait, I have. I have yes, heard yes, of this. yeah, yeah. I don't. I can't understand how Netflix isn't advertising it to me, but yeah, I have heard of it. Yeah, so it's Sorry, number one. It's a drama series. It premiered like a few days ago, and I will start watching it. And basically, what it is is about it's about Nimue, and she actually in Arthurian legend. Spoiler: If anybody hasn't read Arthurian legend, she is the Lady of the Lake, the famous person who hides in the lake and delivers the sword to Merlin 
um, she, she's the one who guards um, Excalibur, that special sword which Arthur uses to free the world or free England. I can't completely remember. I blend more to Arthur with Merlin. Anyway. And, I mean, Merlin is obviously the true canon. Yeah. Like, forget, like, Tennyson. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, basically, um, the idea about the show, it's similar to Merlin in that Nimue is a magic a, a, a witch a, a druid star magician and her people are being hunted by king uther duh as as of as course. it was in merlin and basically <laughs> it's interesting because it's about nimue right so they've got Catherine langford from 13 reasons why in the starring role mm. and um obviously she's a big up and coming actress she's up and come actually she's already here um and i think it's very interesting because i think it's going to talk about female power and you know having this woman wielding a sword as a sort of not a, not an about turn in the Arthurian legend, but about highlighting the women in the Arthurian legend, I think it's going to be quite interesting. And it seems, it, it seems you know, pointed, right? There's a you know the um, what somebody writing about it has written. Uh, it was it is a coming of age story whose themes are familiar to our own time: the obliteration of the natural world, religious terror, census war, and finding the courage to lead in the face of the impossible. So. The the story of Arthur and the sword has now been given to Nimue, this lady of the lake. And what's equally interesting, I haven't watched it and I will get back to you about it, but I'm really excited to see a show like this because um, I loved Merlin. I love shows set in this, like, not even medieval, it's like pre-medieval, like Baroque, French. It's like, oh gosh, it's like Sleeping Beauty from the Disney version style world, right? With the magic and the Arthur and everything like that. I love that. So I'm really excited to see a show like this and I don't know what it'll be like. And one of the extra little fun things about this show that I noticed, right, is she plays Nimue, right? This Lady of the yeah. Lake character who's existed in Mort Arthur legend forever. But she, yeah, and then basically I thought to myself, huh, wasn't Catherine Langford in Merlin? And I looked it up and I realised, no, Catherine Langford wasn't in Merlin, but a woman named Michelle Ryan, who looks exactly like her, played Nimue, another, who was an evil villain who stood over a, a, a pool of water and cursed Merlin, etc. in actual Merlin. So it all, come, it all came full circle and I'm shook, basically. I mean, yeah, obviously, I guess neither of us have seen this series yet, but like when I'm looking at pictures, the aesthetic does look quite similar to Merlin because I guess... Merlin, the BBC show, what was kind of unusual about it at the time was that they cast Merlin as like a young guy. Yeah. Everybody in it is young. Yeah. And that's kind of the, you know, there's there's no kind of like old bearded wizard kind of vibes. Um, and it looks yeah. like this, this new Netflix show is kind of going down the same path of like everybody being like young and beautiful. Um, which is, you know, I guess not not by any means is that like, ex you know, yeah. surprising, but it's still interesting I mean, that it's a similar kind of vibe. Yeah, definitely has a similar look. Well, again, if Netflix heard, listened to our conversations, as I'm sure, you know, the data sure mining do. companies do and heard how much we love Merlin and looking at this trailer again, I do have to say it's so similar in terms of how it's filmed, where it's filmed. And also the, even the kind of like the the cursed um, title looks a lot like the Merlin title. I don't know. But um, Merlin. yeah, Merlin. <laughs> Merlin. But I, does it have John Hurt as the voice of the dragon? Yeah, like, does it? Actually, no, because John Hurt sadly passed away. <laughs> yeah, I know he did. Yeah, but, you um, can't replace him. No, you can't. And uh, anyway, I just think it's very interesting um, to see how they do this show. Um, and if it's an heir to Merlin, we'll see Netflix. But uh, it's just, Netflix, just, I don't know. They just, they knock it out of the park. I mean, I'm pretty sure that Merlin is available to watch on Netflix and obviously oh. um you know they I do feel like they use that kind of data 
yeah what are people watching yeah and I'm sure there'd be a lot of people who'd only discover I mean obviously I'm definitely count myself among this not with Merlin but with other shows where I've only discovered it years later when it happened to be on Netflix so yeah you know they could well have realized that maybe young people were watching it and they were kind of like yeah why don't we do this and I guess also you've got the whole like Game of Thrones yeah no you're absolutely right it's quite big still um yeah, maybe I should watch season five of Merlin again. That was a great one. But then there was The Witcher as well. Oh, and then Netflix is still going on their last Airbender adaptation. I mean, Netflix is just fulfilling all my wildest dreams right now. Anyway, that's what I wanted to say about that. I feel like I still keep being surprised that like new shows are popping up. Mm. Um, yeah, that's true. And it was quite interesting when I was reading about I May Destroy You after I finished it, that they apparently were very much doing like post-production during... Um, during lockdown and yeah. like characters or actors were having to put like blankets over their heads to try and do like what is it that it's called when you do like um post-production yeah yeah um you know like filling in where like voiceover their, right yeah, yeah their voice hasn't been picked up properly so they have to like re-record it yeah and that's something that they'd normally go into the studio to do but they were having to do at home and like try and create a kind of environment where like yeah. you know the sounds could come in and um so yeah it's just interesting to me that we are still getting this new content and obviously it's really good because we you know we want new content to consume yeah um, for sure especially when it's exciting like um all these things are they so. are but yeah i think uh gosh i think we'll end it there i again i shouldn't talk about merlin on this show i just it just ends it just ends bad <laughs> i'd go on forever it's funny because like the the reviews that I'm seeing are all like, oh, Cursed is trying to imitate Game of Thrones. And it's like, no, it's clearly trying to imitate Merlin. Merlin. <laughs> Come on, everybody. Merlin. It was the most important show of the naughty anyway. Um, so as we said, uh, thanks again to Tamsin for coming to talk to us. You really appreciated hearing what she had to say. And her memoir is uh, I Am an Island. It's available now in ebook and audiobook and in hardback on Thursday, 23rd of July. Get out there and read it on your Kindle, on your ebook client. Um, go out to the shop and grab it in a safe manner. Uh, wear your mask in the shop. That is us out until next week. So we have a few episodes coming at you in the next three weeks, um, reflecting the fact we've had a quick break and we have so much fun content coming up for you. So please do give us a listen next week. Yeah, and follow us on all our social media. Real LLW is our Twitter handle. Love's Neighbours Watched is our Instagram handle. And Love's Neighbours Watched at gmail.com is our email. Business inquiries, if you've got anybody you want us to talk about on the show, let us know. If you have any questions, anything you thought we didn't say that you want to highlight, please do get in contact. We love to get emails from people and tweets and stuff. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, well, so long. So long. Until next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>